way back when through a series of bizarre incidents and mostly dumb luck, I went from being a school teacher to a bond broker. I went from the classroom to the Wall Street world of big money and cutthroat wheeling and dealing. Believe me, this was a job for which I was not qualified. I um, had no experience and I had no aptitude for it either. And, you know, I, was a, I grew up in Aloha, Oregon. Uh, my dad was a plasterer. He carried a lunch pail, not a briefcase. And I asked my mom once what she hoped for me like when I grew up. And she said, hmm, that you marry a man who has a job, doesn't drink, and doesn't beat you. <laughs> so when I started as a bond broker, I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And my very first business meeting with a real live client, um, after I passed my test, which made me a bond broker, was with a banker, the president of a bank in Salem, Oregon, Maury. And after I got to know Maury, I found out he was a lot like me. He grew up in Toledo, Oregon. His dad worked in the lumber mill. He quit high school and went into the Navy and became an MP, which qualified him when he got out to be a security guard at a bank. And 20 years later, by dint of hard work and no connections whatsoever, he's the president of a bank. <laughs> So Maury and I, he became a great client. And because we were both outsiders in an insider business, we became great friends. And we would talk on the phone three or four times a week. About once a month, he would come into Portland and we would go out to lunch. And you gotta remember, this is the 80s. People went, when they went out, when you went out to lunch in the 80s, you went out to lunch. <laughs> it was none of this hour stuff, you know. It was three hours, it was four hours. Now the market closed at one. I was West Coast broker, East Coast time. So we'd sit at Salty's and have a bottle of wine and maybe a drink or two, and that was lunch. <laughs> and, um, so this went on for 12 years. We did a ton of business together. I learned a lot from him. And we, I never had a male friend. And he was a great friend. And so 12 years, we had this going on, and then Maury, sold the bank. He had a lot of bank stock in the bank, and so he took the money and with a group of small, uh, another, a small group of investors, they bought another bank in West Hollywood, California, with the plan that Maury would go down there and become president of that bank and turn it around. So Maury left, and our phone calls for the last 12 years had been three or four times a week and once a month lunches. Um, we're down to like half a dozen times a year. We would talk on the phone and catch up with each other. And in the meantime, Maury got a divorce. And in the meantime, I got a divorce. And then I got another divorce. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. Um, 
So um, at the uh, end of this 12-year period of time, Maury's in California, and he, he, on a Friday night, he gives me one of these half a dozen phone calls that we, we had throughout the year, and I hadn't talked to him for a while, and we're talking, and da-da-da-da-da, after my second divorce, and he says, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you come down to L.A. and visit? Alarm bells, visit, <laughs> what do you mean? Okay, you know, I, you know. And I thought, why, I, you know, I didn't see him as a romantic partner ever. He was my friend. Um, and Maury didn't look like how I imagined somebody that I would have a romance with would look. He was short, he was stocky, he had big shoulders, he was 12 years older than I was, and every one of those 12 years was lived in his face. I mean, he, he looked like a boxer or a gangster. He did not look like a close. And so, um, I thought, eh, you know, uh, risk of friendship. Uh, but on the other hand, Maury had these blue, sparkly eyes and this fine <laughs> face. And they were the eyes of like a, a little boy who looked like every <coughs> once in a while when he decided he was going to do something he wasn't supposed to do, but he knew he was going to do it and he was excited about it. I kind of thought about that too. <laughs> And so I, okay, weekend in LA, 12 year friendship. Okay, I'm going to LA. So, uh, I got on the plane and left gray Portland and got off the plane in LA to that white light that only exists in LA. And that was the beginning of a two and a half year long romance. About every three weeks, I would leave Portland and my little rental house where I lived by myself, very quiet, and I'd leave Portland, get on the plane, and Maury would be there at the gate. This is the 80s, as you can see at the gate. Maury <laughs> <laughs> um, loved LA. I mean, you can forget all these Oregonians, you know, LA, land of the stupid, you know. <laughs> Maury loved LA, and he got to know the, the city. And every weekend, he had an adventure planned out for the two of us. And we saw every must-see site in LA. And I got to see it through his eyes. And the one thing that all of these adventures had in common was at the end of it, we ended up in a dark, smoky bar. <laughs> that, that was a given. Maury loved bars as much as he, he loved LA. It was um, where he was comfortable. It was part of who he was. And one of his favorite bars was called the Silver Spoon. And it was this dive in West Hollywood. <laughs> and it was his regular bar where he went to dinner every night. And if you think a regular bar, it was like Cheers. It was the same people every night <laughs> in the same spot. You know, they all had their chair. And um, we would walk in the bar. And this was a group, the, the people who inhabited the Silver Spoon were a colorful group, more colorful than Cheers, actually. They were down and out character actors, piano players, singers past their prime, the bartender played the accordion. <laughs> so it was always an adventure to go into the Silver Spoon. And we would walk in and one step in the door and somebody would go, hey, Maury, Maury, over here, over here. And about then, Maury would put his hand in his pocket and, and take out his money clip, which he always carried. I always thought this was very cool. 
um, like he'd have seven or eight hundred dollars in cash in, in his money clip. And he needed it because he went to all these bars. If you want to get into a good bar in LA and get a good seat, then you have money. And so um, he would buy a round, usually for the house. We'd always sit at the bar, always. And I had my LA weekend outfit on, which was the same. I tried to recreate it tonight, but it's not as cool as It's kind of close. The skirt was shorter. Um, it was leather. Um, it was black. Um, I had tights on and always big hoop earrings. And so I'd hoist up to the bar and we would have two or three drinks. He'd have three or four. I'd have two or three. Um, I even started smoking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was way old enough to know better. <laughs> I mean, I'd quit smoking 20 years before that. And I, I started smoking those uh, Nate Shermans, these elegant, skinny, little brown cigarettes. I thought it was very cool. And um, <laughs> anyway, usually at some point during the evening, somebody would come up to the bar and sit next to Maury, and he'd kind of turn and talk to him for a while, and I'd see his hand go in his pocket, actually his money clip pocket, and um, Maury was kind of the godfather. If somebody couldn't make their rent that month, Maury would help them out. If somebody had lost their glasses, who knows where, Maury would see they got a new pair of glasses. He really was the godfather, and, and, and everyone loved him. And when I wasn't in LA sitting on a bar stool with drinking and smoking, um, I was back in Florida <laughs> by myself in my house. Um, but we would talk on the phone every night, two, three hours. We had, again, 80s, no cell phones, and the, and the phone bills were three, $400 a month. And at least once a week, I would open, the, somebody would knock on the door, and I'd open the door, and there'd be some little messenger peeking out behind this huge bouquet of yellow roses or tiger lilies, some kind of flowers. At least once a week, he sent me flowers. And we decided, now it's been two and a half years, we're going to go on a big trip, and we wanted to go to Europe. But I kept changing my mind, I didn't know where I wanted to go. And he said, look, you're always talking about those immigrant grandparents of yours. Let's go find out, let's go find out where they were born. Let's go see their homelands, let's do that. And great, let's go. So off we went, and we spent a lot of time tromping through graveyards in Croatia and in the Czech Republic, looking at tombstones, trying to find Zahumenskis and Yakubets. And actually in Croatia, we found living Yakubets who were my relatives, and um, they were barefoot and lived on a farm, but that is a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the last day of our trip, we ended it in Venice. And we were in St. Mark's Square, and it was twilight, and there's two orchestras on either side of the square, and they start playing when it's dusk. And in the middle of St. Mark's Square, Maury got down on his knees, and he proposed to me. He asked me to marry him. Okay, you'd think after two and a half years of this romance, I would not have been surprised. But um, it was like, marriage? Why would we wreck this? This is awesome. You know? <laughs> you know, this is the best time I've ever had. We haven't 
picked up each other's dirty socks. We haven't had the mundane domestic stuff that marriage always ends up being sometimes. Um, you know, and I've been married twice and divorced twice. I, you know, I really was a two-time loser, and I, um, I just thought, I knew. Uh, I didn't want a husband. <laughs> I wanted a boyfriend. It's <laughs> way better, I thought. And and I, I didn't say no. I said we need to live in the same city first. That's you know, and fine. Didn't argue. Went home. On the we got off the airplane in L.A. and we were both sick. L.A. I mean airplane. So Maury stayed in LA, I flew back to Portland, and right before we had gone on this trip, I bought a house in Portland. And it was my very first buying my house all by myself, no husband, and I had packed up all my stuff in the rental, but I hadn't moved. And so when I got home, I moved all my stuff to my new husband-free house, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Maury, <laughs> didn't get unsick. He kept, he kept not feeling well. And he went to the doctor and they did all these tests and they couldn't figure it out and they decided um, to do this exploratory surgery. And he said, don't come down, Diane. Unpack. Unpack. Come down on the weekend. Don't waste your day in LA when I'm overnight at the hospital. So I unpacked my bedroom on the day that he was having the surgery. And I was surrounded by boxes that I had packed a month ago. So of course I had no idea what I put in any of them. And I was waiting for the phone call to tell me everything was okay. And I was going through all these boxes that I thought a maniac must have packed because there was no order. <laughs> and I, as, I, as I was unpacking the boxes, I kept coming across little gifts that Maury had given me over the last two and a half years. And there was this like little white teddy bear that he wound up and it played You Are My Sunshine. And now it's like, eh, it's about an hour past, somebody's supposed to call, but uh, I, I get it, the hospital's always late. So I kept unpacking boxes and I came across um, this gold locket he'd given me for Valentine's Day. And I kept unpacking and I kept watching the phone, now it's three hours late, now it's four hours late. And I started getting nervous. It's too late, it's too long. And I started kind of pacing around, and I started looking at the phone and willing the phone to ring. And I put the locket on, this will do it, you know. And um, I came across a box, it's now about five hours late. And I came across a box that when I opened it, I found this <laughs> exquisite teal blue lace French underwear that he had given me. This bra, panties, that I didn't have the nerve to wear. It was not meant to be worn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, no, no. And, and, but I'm getting pretty nervous. You know, it's six hours late and I'm pacing and I'm thinking about smoking and I'm not even in a bar. And, um, and as I'm pacing around, feeling horrible, it hit me. Oh, geez. <laughs> I'm in love with this man. I love him. This is what love is. This horrible, awful, <laughs> nervous, <laughs> terrible, anxiety.
You know, it didn't matter that he was 12 years older than I was. It didn't matter that he looked like a gangster, that he wasn't my fantasy guy. Um, what mattered was this amazingly generous and adventurous and incredibly kind man. Loved me with no limits and no judgment. And I'd never been loved like that before. I didn't know what that felt like. And I clearly didn't even know what love was. I felt like I just was stuck with love. And I, I sat down. And when I sat on the bed, you know, it dawned on me that I didn't discover love. I didn't have any control over this. Love discovered me. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't seeking it. I didn't feel like I had a choice. Love was this power that came into me in spite of me. I had no control over this. And I never felt so vulnerable in my life at that moment of realizing I was not in control. And it was not too long after that, maybe 15, 20 minutes, the phone rang and it was Maury's assistant, was finally out of surgery. And um, she told me that they had found cancer and it was inoperable and untreatable mm -hmm. and he had six to 12 months to live. And um, the next morning I was on the earliest flight I could get to LA and I walked into that white light into a cab and got to the hospital fluorescent light of UCLA Medical Center. And when I got there, I found out that Maury hadn't been told. His surgery was late at night and he was sleeping. And um, I knew that when he saw me, he would know something was up. So I knew I had to tell him. And so I walked down this very long hallway at UCLA Medical Center, and it was eerily empty. There was hardly any people around. And as I was walking down this hallway, I kept telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, you cannot cry. And I was also telling myself, tell it to him quickly, make it short. Maury hates a bullshitter, he can spot one a mile away, tell it to him fast, and don't cry. So when I got to his room, the door was ajar, and I went in, and, and he was sleeping. His glasses were on the tray next to the bed, and it made him look not quite like he looked, in a way. And I didn't want to wake him up. I mean, the minute I woke him up, it would become real. And his eyes opened, and for a second, he kind of lit up, you know, oh, Diane. And then he looked very puzzled, like, well, well you know, and I, I moved as quickly as I could to the bed to sit down so I could tell him before he figured it out himself. And I sat on the bed and I, I took his hand and I looked into those bad boy blue eyes <laughs> and I said, Maury, um, they found cancer. It, it doesn't look good. And he looked back at me and 